Chapter 14 of Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood by George MacDonald. Chapter 14 My Pupil. Although I do happen to know how Miss Oldcastle feared the night after I left her, the painful record is not essential to my story. Besides, I have here too recorded only those things quorum, paris, magna, or minima, as the case may be. Fooey, there is one exception, old Weir's story, for the introduction of which my reader cannot yet see the artistic reason. For whether a story be real in fact, or only real in meaning, there must always be an idea or artistic model in the brain, after which it is fashioned. In the latter case, one of invention, in the former case, one of choice. In the middle of the following week, I was returning from a visit I had paid to Tompkins and his wife, when I met, in the only street of the village, my good and honoured friend, Dr. Duncan. Of course I saw him often, and I beg my reader to remember that this is no diary, but only gathering together of some of the more remarkable facts of my history admitting of being ideally grouped, but this time I recall distinctly, because the interview bore upon many things. Well, Dr. Duncan, I said, busy as usual fighting the devil? Ah, my dear Walton, returned the doctor, and a kind word from him went a long way into my heart. I know what you mean. You fight the devil from the inside, and I fight him from the outside. My chance is a poor one. It would be, perhaps, if you were confined to outside remedies. But what an opportunity your profession gives you of attacking the enemy from the inside as well. And you have the advantage over us, that no man can say it belongs to your profession to say such things, and therefore disregard them. Ah, Mr. Walton, I have too great a respect for your profession to dare to interfere with it. The doctor in Macbeth, you know, could not minister to a mind diseased. Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raised out the writing troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff, which weighs upon the heart. What a memory you have, but you don't think I can do that any more than you. You know the best medicine to give, anyhow. I wish I always did, but you see, we have no thoriaca now. Well, we have, for the Lord says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. There, I told you, that will meet all diseases. Strangely now there comes into my mind a line of Chaucer, with which I will make a small return for your quotation from Shakespeare. You have mentioned Thoriaca, and I, without thinking of this line, quoted our Lord's words. Chaucer brings the two words together, for the word triacle is merely a corruption of Thoriaca, the unfailing cure for everything. Christ, which is that to every harm, triacle. That is delightful, I thank you, and that is in Chaucer. Yes, in the Man of Law's tale. Shall I tell you how I was able to quote so correctly from Shakespeare? I have just come from referring to the passage, and I mention that because I want to tell you what made me think of the passage. I had been to see poor Catherine Weir. I think she is not long for this world. She has a bad cough, and I fear her lungs are going. I am concerned to hear that. I consider her very delicate, and I am not surprised, but I wish, I do wish, I had got a little hold of her before, that I might be of some use to her now. Is she in immediate danger, do you think? No, I do not think so, 
but I have no expectation of her recovery. Very likely she will live through the winter and die in the spring. Those patients so often go as the flowers come. All her coughing, poor woman, will not cleanse her stuffed bosom. The perilous stuff weighs on her heart, as Shakespeare says, as well as on her lungs. Ah, dear, what is it, doctor, that weighs upon her heart? Is it shame, or what is it? For she is so uncommunicative that I hardly know anything at all about her yet. I cannot tell. She has the faculty of silence. But do not think I complain that she has not made me her confessor. I only mean that if she would talk at all, one would have the chance of knowing something of her state of mind, and so might give her some help. Perhaps she will break down all at once, and open her mind to you. I have not told her she is dying. I think a medical man ought at least to be quite sure before he dares to say such a thing. I have known a long life endured, to human view at least, by the medical verdict in youth of ever imminent death. Certainly one has no right to say what God is going to do with anyone till he knows it beyond a doubt. Illness has its own peculiar mission, independent of any association with coming death, and may often work better when mingled with the hope of life. I mean, we must take care of presumption when we measure God's plans by our theories. But could you not suggest something, Dr. Duncan, to guide me in trying to do my duty by her? I cannot. You see, you don't know what she is thinking. Until you know that, I presume you will agree with me that all is an aim in the dark. How can I prescribe without some diagnosis? It is just one of those few cases in which one would like to have the authority of the Catholic priests to urge confession with. I do not think anything will save her life, as we say, but you have taught some of us to think of the life that belongs to the spirit as the life and I do believe confession would do everything for that. Yes, if made to God. But I will grant that communication of one's sorrows, or even sins, to a wise brother of mankind may help to a deeper confession to the Father in heaven. But I have no wish for authority in the matter. Let us see whether the Spirit of God working in her may not be quite as powerful for a final illumination of her being as the feared confessio of a priest. I have no confidence in forcing in the moral or spiritual garden. A hothouse development must necessarily be a sickly one, rendering the plant unfit for the normal life of the open air. Wait, we must not hurry things. She will perhaps come to me of herself before long. But I will call and inquire after her. We parted, and I went at once to Catherine Weir's shop. She received me much as usual, which was hardly to be called receiving at all. Perhaps there was a doubtful shadow, not of more cordiality, but of less repulsion in it. Her eyes were full of a stony brilliance, and the flame of the fire that was consuming her glowed upon her cheeks more brightly, I thought, than ever. But that might be fancy, occasioned by what the doctor had said about her. Her hand trembled, but her demure was perfectly calm. I am sorry to hear you are complaining, Miss Weir, I said. I suppose Dr. Duncan told you so, sir. But I am quite well. I did not send for him. He called of himself, and wanted to persuade me I was ill. I understood that she felt injured by the interference. You should attend to his advice, though. He is a prudent man, and not in the least given to alarming people without cause. She returned no answer, so I tried another subject. 
What a fine fellow your brother is. Yes, he grows very much. Has your father found another place for him yet? I don't know. My father never tells me about any of his doings. But don't you go and talk to him sometimes? No, he does not care to see me. I am going there now. Will you come with me? Thank you. I never go where I am not wanted. But it is not right that father and daughter should live as you do. Suppose he may not have been so kind to you as he ought. You should not cherish resentment against him for it. That only makes matters worse, you know. I never said to human being that he had been unkind to me. And yet you let every person in the village know it. How? Her eyes had no longer the stony glitter. It flashed now. You are never seen together. You scarcely speak when you meet. Neither of you crosses the other's threshold. It is not my fault. It is not all your fault, I know. But do you think you can go to a heaven at last, where you will be able to be apart from each other, he in his house and you in your house, without any sign that it was through his father on earth that you were born into the world, which the father in heaven redeemed by the gift of his own son? She was silent, and after a pause I went on. I believe in my heart that you love your father. I could not believe otherwise of you. And you will never be happy till you have made it up with him. Have you done him no wrong? At these words her face turned white with anger. I could see all but those spots on her cheekbones, which shone out in dreadful contrast to the deathly paleness of the rest of her face. Then the returning blood surged violently from her heart, and the red spots were lost in one crimson glow. She opened her lips to speak, but apparently changed her mind, turned and walked haughtily out of the shop and closed the door behind her. I waited, hoping she would recover herself and return, but after ten minutes had passed, I thought it better to go away. As I had told her, I was going to her father's shop. There I was received very differently. There was a certain softness in the manner of the carpenter, which I had not observed before, with the same heartiness in the shake of his hand, which had accompanied my last leave-taking. I had purposely allowed ten days to elapse before I called again, to give time for the unpleasant feeling associated with my interference to vanish. And now I had something in my mind about young Tom. Have you got anything for your boy yet, Thomas? Not yet, sir. There's time enough. I don't want to part with him just yet. There he is, taking his turn at what's going. Tom. And from the farther end of the large shop, where I had not observed him, now approached young Tom, in a canvas jacket, looking quite like a workman. Well, Tom, I am glad to find you can turn your hand to anything. I must be a stupid, sir, if I couldn't handle my father's tools, returned the lad. I don't know that quite. I am not just prepared to admit it for my own sake. My father is a lawyer, and I never could read a chapter in one of his books. His tools, you know. Perhaps you never tried, sir. Indeed, I did, and no doubt I could have done it if I had made up my mind to it. But I never felt inclined to finish the page. And that reminds me why I called today. Thomas, I know that lad of yours is fond of reading. Can you spare him from his work for an hour or so before breakfast? Tomorrow, sir. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, I answered. And there's Shakespeare for you. Of course, sir, whatever you wish, said Thomas, with a perplexed look, in which pleasure seemed to long for confirmation, and to be, till that came, afraid to put its native semblance on. 
I want to give him some direction in his reading. When a man is fond of any tools and can use them, it is worth while showing him how to use them better. Oh, thank you, sir, exclaimed Tom, his face beaming with delight. That is kind of you, sir. Tom, you're a made man, cried his father. So, I went on, if you will let him come to me for an hour every morning, till he gets another place, say from eight to nine, I will see what I can do for him. Tom's face was as red with delight as his sister's had been with anger, and I left the shop somewhat consoled for the pain I had given Catherine, which grieved me without making me sorry that I had occasioned it. I had intended to try to do something from the father's side towards a reconciliation with his daughter, but no sooner had I made up my proposal for Tom than I saw I had blocked up my own way towards my more important end, for I could not bear to seem to offer to bribe him even to allow me to do him good, nor would he see that it was for his good and his daughter's, not at first. The first impression would be that I had a professional end to gain, that the reconciliation of father and daughter was a sort of parish business of mine, and that I had smoothed the way to it by offering a gift, an intellectual one, true, but not, therefore, the lesser gift in the eyes of Thomas, who had a great respect for books. This was just what would irritate such a man, and I resolved to say nothing about it, but bide my time. When Tom came, I asked him if he had read any Wordsworth, for I always give people what I like myself, because that must be wherein I can best help them. I was anxious, too, to find out what he was capable of. And for this, anything that has more than a surface meaning will do. I had no doubt about the lad's intellect, and now I wanted to see what there was deeper than the intellect in him. He said he had not. I therefore chose one of Wordsworth's sonnets, not one of his best by any means, but suitable for my purpose. The one entitled, Composed During a Storm. This I gave him to read, telling him to let me know when he considered that he had mastered the meaning of it and sat down to my own studies. I remember I was reading the Anglo-Saxon Gospels. I think it was fully half an hour before Tom rose and gently approached my place. I had not been uneasy about the experiment after ten minutes had passed, and after that time was doubled, I felt certain of some measure of success. This may possibly puzzle my reader, but I will explain. It was clear that Tom did not understand the sonnet at first, and I was not in the least certain that he would come to understand it by any exertion of his intellect without further experience. But what I was delighted to be made sure of was that Tom at least knew that he did not know, for that is the very next step to knowing. Indeed, it may be said to be a more valuable gift than the other, being of general application. For some quick people will understand many things very easily, but when they come to a thing that is beyond their present reach, will fancy they see a meaning in it, or invent one, or even, which is far worse, pronounce it nonsense, and indeed show themselves capable of any device for getting out of the difficulty, except seeing and confessing to themselves that they are not able to understand it. Possibly this sonnet might be beyond Tom now, but at least there was great hope that he saw or believed that there must be something beyond him in it. I only hoped that he would not fall upon some wrong interpretation, seeing he was brooding over it so long. 
Well, Tom, I said, have you made it out? I can't say I have, sir. I'm afraid I'm very stupid, for I've tried hard. I must just ask you to tell me what it means. But I must tell you one thing, sir. Every time I read it over, twenty times, I dare say, I thought I was lying on my mother's grave. As I lay that trembling night, and then, at the end, there you were standing over me and saying, Can I do anything to help you? I was struck with astonishment, for here, in a wonderful manner, I saw the imagination outrunning the intellect, and manifesting to the heart what the brain could not yet understand. It indicated undeveloped gifts of a far higher nature than those belonging to the mere power of understanding alone. For there was a hidden sympathy of the deepest kind between the life experience of the lad and the embodiment of such life experience on the part of the poet. But he went on. I am sure, sir, I ought to have been at my prayers then, but I wasn't. So I didn't deserve you to come. But don't you think God is sometimes better to us than we deserve? He's just everything to us, Tom, and we don't and can't deserve anything. Now I will try to explain the sonnet to you. I had always had an impulse to teach, not for the teaching's sake, for that, regarded as the attempt to fill skulls with knowledge, had always been, to me, a desolate dreariness. But the moment I saw a sign of hunger, an indication of readiness to receive, I was invariably seized with a kind of passion for giving. I now proceeded to explain the sonnet. Having done so, nearly as well as I could, Tom said, It is very strange, sir, but now that I have heard you say, what the poem means, I feel as if I had known it all the time, though I could not say it. Here at least was no common mind. The reader will not be surprised to hear that the hour before breakfast extended into two hours after breakfast as well. Nor did this take up too much of my time, for the lad was capable of doing a great deal for himself under the sense of help at hand. His father, so far from making any objection to the arrangement, was delighted with it nor do I believe that the lad did less work in the shop for it. I learned that he worked regularly till eight o'clock every night. Now the good of the arrangement was this. I had the lad fresh in the morning, clear-headed, with no mist from the valley of labour to cloud his heights of understanding. From the exercise of the mind, it was a pleasant and revealing change to turn to bodily exertion. I am certain that he both thought and worked better, because he had thought and worked. Every literary man ought to be mechanical, to use a Shakespearean word, as well, but it would have been quite a different matter if he had come to me after the labour of the day. He would not then have been able to think nearly so well, but labour, sleep, thought labour again, seems to me to be the right order for those who, earning their bread by the sweat of the brow, would yet remember that man shall not live by bread alone. Were it possible that our mechanics could attend the institution, called by their name, in the morning instead of the evening, perhaps we should not find them so ready to degrade into places of mere amusement. I am not objecting to the amusement, only to cease to educate in order to amuse is to degenerate. Amusement is a good and sacred thing, but it is not on par with education, and indeed, if it does not in any way further the growth of the higher nature, it cannot be called good at all. Having exercised him in the analysis of some of the best portions of our home literature, I mean helped him to take them to pieces, that putting them together again, he might see what kind of things they were. For who could understand a new machine, 
or find out what it was meant for, without either actually, or in his mind, taking it to pieces. Which pieces, however, let me remind my reader, are utterly useless, except in their relation to the whole. I resolved to try something fresh with him. At this point I had intended to give my readers a theory of mine about the teaching and learning of a language, and tell them how I had found the trial of its success in the case of Tom Weir. But I think this would be too much of a digression from the course of my narrative, and would, besides, be interesting to those only who had given a good deal of thought to subjects belonging to education. I will only say, therefore, that, by the end of the three months, my pupil, without knowing any other Latin author, was able to read any part of the first book of the Aeneid, to read it tolerably in measure, and to enjoy the poetry of it, and this not without a knowledge of the declensions and the conjunctions. As to the syntax, I made the sentences themselves teach him that. Now I know that, as an end, all this was of no great value, but as a beginning it was invaluable, for it made and kept him hungry for more whereas in most modes of teaching the beginnings are such that without the pressure of circumstances no boy, especially after an interval of secession, will return to them. Such is not nature's mode, for the beginnings with her are as pleasant as the fruition, and that without being less thorough than they can be. The knowledge a child gains of the external world is the foundation upon which all his future philosophy is built. Every discovery he makes is fraught with pleasure, that is the secret of his progress, and the essence of my theory, that learning should, in each individual case, as in the first case, be discovery, bringing its own pleasure with it. Nor is this to be confounded with turning study into play. It is upon the moon itself that the infant speculates, after the moon itself, that he stretches out his eager hands, to find in after years that he still wants her but that in science and poetry he has her a thousandfold more than if she had been handed him down to suck. So after all, I have bored my reader with a shadow of my theory, instead of a description. After all, again, the description would have plagued him more, and that must be both his and my comfort. So through the whole of that summer and the following winter, I went on teaching Tom Weir. He was a lad of uncommon ability else he could not have effected what I say he had within his first three months of Latin. Let my theory be not only perfect in itself, but true as well, true to human nature, I mean. And his father, though his own book learning was but small, had enough of insight to perceive that his son was something out of the common, and that any possible advantage he might lose by remaining in Marshmallow was considerably more than counterbalanced by the instruction he got from the vicar. Hence, I believe, it was that not a word was said about another situation for Tom, and I was glad of it, for it seemed to me that the lad had abilities equal to any profession whatever. End chapter 14